You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Every article of clothing, every accessory worn by a member of the military must conform to the regulation, but there are gaps in compliant clothing available for service members, particularly women. While I was on active duty, finding a purse that fell under military regulations was more than difficult. It was impossible. The purse I had found was technically non-compliant, but every purse I had found had one thing that made it so it did not meet standards. Luckily, Wilco Life understood this need and created an online boutique of minimalist style bag and accessories that meet military regulations. And even if you are not looking for a military regulations purse or bag, you should check out Wilco Life since they also offer and carry product from veteran-owned companies that don't meet military regulations. Go to wilcosupplyco.com, use the code airmentomom, and save 15%. That's wilcosupplyco.com with the code airman, the number two, mom, to save 15%. Now, let's get back to the show. Grace served in the Air Force on active duty in the 90s for nine and a half years. While she was in, she was a flight crew member on board the KC-135 refueling jets. She has been everywhere at least twice. She had two non-flying stints during her military service, which included various leadership positions. She ran an airlift control center for NATO in Italy and ran counter-narcotics operations support center in Ecuador. Welcome, Grace. I'm excited to learn more about your time in the military. Amanda, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, what you're doing to really showcase the ways that women serve. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. I'm excited. I have really enjoyed interviewing everyone that I've gotten a chance to talk. I'm going to dive right in with why did you decide to join the military? So my story is a bit unusual in that I am the daughter of Mexican immigrants so that we had no history of serving since my parents pretty much just arrived from Mexico and I was born in Texas. So my story is a bit weird because when I was in high school, pretty much knew I wanted to go to college, but as the oldest daughter of five, total of five kids in the family, we didn't have the money college. So I was trying to figure out how could that even be a thing? And so I kept showing up at my counselor's office and saying, so how does a kid like me go to college? And what was so amazing and the big miracle of my life really is that my high school counselor said, come to my house for dinner. I went to her house and that's where I met Major Burgess. And he told me about the Air Force ROTC scholarship. So I went from, oh, the recruiters are here in the cafeteria and they're trying to take me away and avoiding them because that's really, I mean, I literally knew nothing. Right? But that's what I sense is that they're here to talk to people who are not going to college and I, I have to find a way, right? And so thank God my counselor happened to be an officer who went to school on an ROTC scholarship. I think he had seven siblings in his family. And so he was like wonderful role model to tell me that there's a way to do it, to have the military pay for college first and then you serve after. So I just listened to his every word. And I like to say that the Air Force found me that way because I sure wasn't looking but it was all placed for me. So I decided to join once I learned there was this other way I could guarantee my education first. 
And thank God I had this mentor. And he basically walked me through the entire vacation and the physical and the preparation to interview with six officers at a local panel that felt like I was on trial. I mean, the whole thing was so intimidating, right? But I, I wasn't alone. And that's where it all began for me. It's wonderful serendipity of my counselor's husband. That's really a neat story. I'm not a first-generation American, but my family doesn't really have any military history, and I was looking at enlisting, and I didn't know that ROTC existed because I didn't know anything about the military, and then my friend took me out to lunch, and he's like, I'm going to be an officer, and you're going to have to salute me, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And so then he told me about ROTC, and that's how I... How did he know? I have to know how he knew. His father was in the Air National Guard, and he was an officer, so I'm sure that's how. It's the family legacy. So guess what? My kids know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of kids that I reach because of the work that I do now, they know. And that's part of what I'm doing is I could have just not known. Right. I could have not known, and it's so random that I think that I don't want it to be random. So that, that's an awesome story, but I'm so happy that you found out. In the bio you talked, it talks a little bit about how you were on the KC-135. What was your job? So my military specialty was aircraft navigator. The KC-135 is a flying gas station, and there's a, an airfander, a co-pilot, and then the mathematician on board is the navigator, and that was me. And then the boom operator who lays on her or his stomach and actually puts the flying boom into the receptacle of the receiver to make the transition, uh, the transfer of gas possible. So I was the mathematician. I was the one doing all the computations to make the rendezvous happen, you know, exactly on time. So we roll out exactly three miles in front of the receiver at exactly the right time. So doing the mission planning with the receivers before taking off and then really running the rendezvous and basically telling the pilots what to do and how fast to do it so that we end up exactly where we need to be and we're not like behind the receiver trying to catch them and stuff like right. that. There's a lot of tactical flying over in the Persian Gulf War part one. Later on, I got to go to instructor school and then teach other people how to do that particular specialty. Game contingency planning. So once you've been in for a while, you start doing staff work really doing the war planning in the OSS, part of the officer or the operations support squadron, through you know, what would our response be at the base level, at the squadron level, if North Korea invades South Korea, what's our response? So that war planning stuff, I got to do all of that. And so thinking and calculating and putting packages together and briefing the generals. So it went from flying to teaching to doing that, the contingency planning. As a navigator in the 90s, how much did you guys rely on computers or was it all by like hand or how did, how did that work? So the way they do it in, and they still do this now, even though they have, you know, new tech, but the way they've always done it is we've always had the inertia navigation system and the Doppler navigation system. So two different navigation systems on board the plane for redundancy. But because they rely on electronics and battery backups, stuff happens and when you lose one or two of those systems, you still have to be able to manually know where you are and still do the rendezvous, point A to point B. This isn't like United Airlines, right? You still have other airplanes relying on you being at the right place. So basically they taught us the technology and then they taught us the backups. And then we learned to do these weird things like grid navigation, which is like a throwback to 
the SAC times where you navigated, not with latitude, longitude, but with a totally different grid. So you learn really like all of these ways to never, ever be lost. That's the best way I can explain it to you. And then of course, later, like I'd say the last three years we were there, we started getting the GPS systems, handheld first, that interfaced, and then later actually installed as part of the Pacer Craig upgrade into the airplane the glass cockpit and all of that. But guess what? They still kept the navigator because all of that stuff could go away with the lightning strike or whatever. And you still have to be able to do this tactical aerial refueling to get gas to others. Some tanker units still have the nav for all those reasons because again, it's another officer, another rated person, another person doing all the safety in addition to the map. So it spreads the load across the crew. But some units have decided to operate without the navigator. So it depends on if they're tactical or not tactical. A lot of yeah, so we used all of the, the latest and greatest, and then we learn it first and teach it to others. That sounds really interesting. Well, I figured that with technology it would change, but then it makes sense that if it's a tactical mission and something goes wrong, you need a person who knows how to do whatever they need to do so that they can get to the right place at the right time. Technology that tells you where you are and that shows your airspeed and all of that is only as reliable as, as it is, right? Even your airspeed indicators could be off. And somebody needs to be doing the math on another secondary system to compare based on what we know to notice that it's off, right? And so all those redundancies were always built in with the human redundancy as well. So I, which is why, you know, people say, why did you get out and not go fly for the airlines? Well, I'm not a pilot and they don't have navigators in the airlines. And my God, I would be so bored. <laughs> I would be so bored after all the tactical stuff you get to do and stuff going wrong and missions changing in the middle because someone's launching a MIG after you go replan the mission, it would be really boring just to take off and go somewhere. Do you have a favorite memory from your time in the military? No, I think my favorite memory is a collective memory of how cool it was to deploy with one crew, two crews, three crews, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, the entire squadron going somewhere. Even if it was somewhere like Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where it wasn't like everyone's favorite deployment, but it was the collective, I used to say, deploying and flying in the Air Force is like working and vacationing with some of your best friends, because that's literally what it was. Like there was, the days were long and you had 16 hour nonstop days to go wherever, you know, you're staying in the air for 19 hours, you're a tanker. And then other days you fly short, you know, two, three hour missions, go up, offload the gas, come back. Then you have time to play volleyball in the desert. So it really, my memories are collective in how much I enjoyed the people and how much I enjoyed the flying and the time that we weren't flying and, you know, like touring around. And if I could pick one favorite memory, really hard. There's so many wonderful things. But there, there was a day in Turkey when it was one of my favorite crews and we had a, a day, I think it was like an early, early mission and we had the afternoon off. So we hopped in the car. And somebody had told us there was a place called, you know how Americans always name stuff? It was called Snake Castle. I don't know why it was called that. We didn't see any snakes. But we drove out to the countryside, and it was these um, you know, just old ruins of a stone castle. And they said, yeah, you just park your car, you walk to a little village, and then there's a trail, and you go up, and you'll see some local people. So my memory of that day was just going on this wild adventure to like, I don't know where we're going in the Turkish countryside with the pilot, co-pilot and drum operator I flew with and coming up on a village and seeing all the, the old men playing the game out on the porch and drinking their tea and, and then the women and children coming up and saying hello. And then one of the children spoke English and asked us for going to the castle and he became our little guide. 
And then the pictures we have of that day, literally it was like a storming the castle day. Like other kids joined us. And so next thing you know, it's like my crew and these kids. And one of the kids had a Turkish flag on a stick. And so we ended up at the top of the castle and then planting this flag at the top. We're like, ah, we made it. So just fun, just fun, fun, fun. And I think like everything else, it's what you make of it. Because there was some long, dreary days and a lot of 2 a.m. wake-ups to go fly that you know, everyone's like half awake and slapping each other around just to, to get up in the air. But overall, the memory is of, of how awesome it was to fly for a living arrive somewhere, keep flying. And then when we're not flying, we're free to explore. I was, I think I was mostly with people who wanted to explore. Sometimes, eh, no, I'd rather not go to Indonesia. I'd rather eat at Denny's. I had people like that on my crew too. But most of the people had that spirit of adventure and, you know, the beginner's mind and wanting to see what is this castle? I don't know. It's a long answer, but I think it's just general memories of the mission, the flying, the satisfaction of getting airplanes where they needed to go with whatever mission it was. And then that downtime to just explore. You talked a little bit about deploying. What was the op tempo like for deployments? Were you gone a lot? Were you home a lot? Wow. It seemed, I'll just tell you the number that I remember. At the point where we'd been married, my husband and I had been married about, we got married and then moved up there. So at the point where we'd been married about eight years, we looked at how much I'd been deployed and we said, well, it's like eight years, but we've really been married and together closer to maybe five. So it seemed like, like that, like we would go either two weeks at a time or three months at a time and then come back and then go. And then I did some non-flying stuff as well that you talked about in the bio. And those were longer assignments because again, I wanted to see what else was there to do and where else could I serve, right? In my capacity. But it was definitely rapid. And it wasn't like now where you go away for a year. It wasn't like that. It was more like go and come back, go and come back. So it was always, the no-fly zones were always in effect. And so they're always rotating the responsibility to different bases. But we're always over in Turkey we're for the northern fly zone. And we're always over in uh, Saudi Arabia for the south, southern no-fly zone. And then other things happened. Somalia happened. Humanitarian missions happened. Bosnia-Herzegovina happened, the NATO work happened. So it was always one thing and another and another that we're involved in. So pretty, pretty high up. So it was high ops tempo, but not quite the same way. Like it wasn't like long, it was short little spurts here and there as things happen. And it kind of sounds like it was unpredictable because things were always changing. That's it. It was unpredictable. I mean, it, I don't know, you know, like now it's like, People go away for such long periods of time. It's been like an endurance situation, right? Versus the way that things were happening back then, it was exactly unpredictable. It was something happens and, you know, it's like, no, no genocide. Let's go stop it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it's unpredictable and crazy. But I think we got used to it. You know, like you get used to the, the year gone. It's, you get used to the randomness. Like, oh, you thought you were going home for Christmas, but now it's two days before and you have to go to to the Somalia thing that happened. Like I think my first year I was up in Washington. My husband had just moved into the house, like in our house, just moved up from California. My mom and brother came out to spend Christmas with us. We're like, yay, we have a house. And, and then literally I disappeared two days before Christmas. So unpredictable, you nailed it. And your husband did not serve in the military. He was a civilian the whole time you were in. So what was it like to have a male military spouse and what kind of challenges did he face with that so he has this t-shirt 
that says Air Force husband, toughest job in the Air Force, which I think is a great summary to your question, <laughs> summary answer. Um, he loved it. I mean, he, he knew when, you know, we were dating in college. And so he saw me do the whole ROTC training and he saw me do the flight training in Sacramento. He actually pinned my wings on me. So, and he proposed the day that I got my wings. Okay. So he, he, he knew what he was getting into. I think the challenge, the way he would answer that question is when people say military spouse, they really mean military wife, right? And the activities that were done then, and maybe it's changed, but you know, tradition is tradition, was really what like what the women wanted to do. And so it wasn't like he really even got asked to do stuff. So I think that was a challenge for him is having that sense of what about me? And he was literally... He was the only Air Force husband in my squadron. The other women were not married. And the one woman that was married, her husband is also flying. So he was like the only civilian guy. But you know what I did with that? Like I said, everything is a Jamaica bit. I thought, he wants to come fly with me. He's a civilian, so he can. Because the Air Force has rules against, you know, husband and wife flying together if you have children, right? There's like, they draw some lines there. So I learned that there's a spouse orientation flight program that squadrons can set up. And so I learned what it was, what the regs were, and I kind of just became the spouse orientation flight coordinator for my squadron and was able to take my husband and the other military spouses flying on a monthly basis so they could see what we do. And it was totally cool because they literally got to go and see the refueling and lay on their stomach in the back and and see what we do. So it's not like this weird mystery of, okay, there goes the airplane by. They literally got to see it. I thought it was the coolest thing that the Air Force made it possible to show that to our spouses. So I made sure that knowing that that's something that I knew he would love to do, and he has lots of pictures and lots of video, which I still get to show at the schools. You know, when I go around at the schools, I get to show some of the videos, some of the photos that, that he took from those flights. So like everything else, we just made the best of what it was. And, and this part was particularly sweet. And yeah, the wives also liked it. I understand the struggle that men have because I feel like when you're in the military, it's mainly guys. And I feel like military women kind of face the similar type of thing where like they go and do the guy thing. And like, so I, I understand. My husband was home when I was deployed. And nobody ever really checked on in on him. And I feel like that was a lot because he was a male and he just kind of, they just forgot about him. And it was just... I mean, it's... So he was civilian also? No, my husband's still in the Air Force, but he's still like, my squadron kind of forgot he existed. <laughs> so I think maybe in that case, they think that he already knows or whatever, but... You know, that's not the point, is that it's the support, it's the feeling that somebody cares, right? That's what he was missing, and that's what my husband was missing, too. It's like, no, I don't need you to bring me some milk and sugar. I just would like for you to check in and see how I'm doing. And let me know that there's a picnic, because maybe I don't want to be here. Maybe I need a break from my routine. Maybe I'm lonely, right? I don't know. Is it up to the military officer person serving to remind people before she goes that she has a male spouse? Whose job is it? I found myself asking this question. Yeah, there was a family or some sort of officer function and they didn't invite my husband. And one of the military spouses was really upset that my husband was forgotten about because he was still my husband. And yeah, and so I feel like the one thing that military spouses who are women, especially if you're like running the group, is to invite 
invite the guys. Maybe they don't want to come. Maybe they, or even give them a way to organize something that they do want to do because they need that opportunity. So yeah, I think at least inviting, you know, because then inviting it doesn't feel like you're being excluded, which I think is more hurtful. Is the the sense that you're being actually excluded, intentionally or not? Did you face any challenges while you were serving in the military? Oh boy, how, how long is this podcast? <laughs> Um, absolutely. Some of them of my own creation. I tell this story because I, you know, yes, we are taught to follow orders. Yes, we're taught tradition, rules, regulations, all of that. It doesn't mean that it counters your inherent personality that you have, right? And especially, I'm sure with men as well, but I know with women, you know, who we who decide to do this non-traditional thing, I think a lot of us are very, very headstrong very tenacious, possibly the word stubborn might be applicable. And there's conflict that arises when you are a logical person and you're being told something that's completely illogical and dare I say, just completely bogus and and you're called out, right? So I feel like my challenge to answer your question, beginning in the first month on active duty when I was in flight training, I feel like I was always, plus I'm a thinker. Okay, I'm a thinker. I like to think about stuff. Why is that, right? I'm like, well, why do we do it that way? And I never was satisfied with because the way that's the way it's done or it's always been done. That was, I'm like, okay, well, there's better ways, right? And I feel like my biggest challenge was I was always too outspoken, they said, I because I talked. And I thought, well, maybe if I was a guy, I could say those things. But I don't know if it was gender or if it's just because the thought was so original that it blew people's minds and it irritated people that I would dare say it. So my biggest challenge, I think, was fitting my critically thinking, outspoken, stubborn personality that has opinions with the expectation that I would just quietly comply. That summarizes my biggest challenge. And the first month of active duty, I found myself in, I got to tell you this one. I found myself in the colonel's office, operations officer at the training squadron. And I remember it's because I had an instructor in a simulator and she was telling me something and I wasn't getting it. And I remember saying something like, could you try explaining it a different way? Because just repeating the same thing that I'm not understanding is not going to help. Can you explain it differently? Can you get someone else to tell me? Because... Whatever you're saying is not computing, right? And she did not like the fact that I was telling her that she was not effectively teaching. I'm like, well, I'm not learning from you, so I'm asking you to try something else, right? But she was personally offended by this. And I'm like, what? So anyway, I'm in the colonel's office because of this. And I'm, so I'm already irritated. And I remember the colonel, he, he was from VMI, and he had a plaque on his desk. And it's, he said, I'm standing at attention, and he's like, Lieutenant, what does that say? And he points to it. I'm looking at it, and I said, um, ours is not to question why, ours is but to do or die, sir, beyond. That's what the plaque said. And he goes, what does that mean to you? And I looked at it and I go, sir, it means that you and I have different ways of thinking. We went to different schools. I went to Berkeley, sir. And I'm not buying that thing on the plaque there, you know? And so that in my first 30 days, I think tells you my biggest challenge is that I was not always with the program. I felt like I was always this close to getting reprimanded in Article 15 or something just for existing. That's my answer to the challenge. And, and it is a challenge because, like I said, it doesn't change your personality and you do your best to work in the confines. But at the end of the day, you are who you are. Yeah, and as a female, I feel like sometimes I would say something and they would be like, stop whining. And I was like, I'm just pointing out 
the obvious. Like, I'm not saying that I don't want to do it. I'm just saying this doesn't make sense. We should probably do it a different way. And they're like, no, you're whining. I'm like, no, I'm just talking. Right? Like the plaque on the desk. I'm questioning why we're doing that. Why? I'm questioning what, what you don't want me to do. So I hear you. Yep. And, you know, one thing that with that, you can do this now. People still want to assign feelings to your sentence, right? It's like, I'm just saying a sentence, I'm observing, and they're saying, you know, I, I, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm like, I'm not feeling a certain way. I'm expressing my opinion, and there's no emotion in it. I'm just expressing a thought about it. I think that assigning feeling to something that isn't there, like telling you you're whining, I, I totally understand. Why didn't you decide to leave the military behind? It was a very logical choice. I was, so I was an officer, had an aeronautical rating, had my master's degree. I'd been to Squandered Officer School. So all signs point to I'm going to be a major, okay? I had done everything as if I'm going to be a major. So that's what I thought. But then I asked my boss in the operations support squadron, who was a major, he'd just become a major. I said, so what happens when I make major? And because, you know, I want to go to Okinawa, like I want to PCS. I hadn't PCS. That was part of it. I'd been at the same base for all seven years flying. Not a bad place to be, but up in Washington State. But, you know, I thought I was going to move around. It's the military, right? But our manning situation was such that they were not letting people move. We are undermanned. So everybody stays. And I was like, no, this is getting old. Right before my major's board, about six months before when we're doing the package, I talked to, to the major and I said, so what happens if I make a major? And he says, well, considering your credentials and everything you've done, he says, you're going to want you to move to headquarters to a Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. I'm like, and if I don't want to? And he says, well, that's the natural career path for a major who then wants to become a colonel. And, and then I said, so what if I don't want to do that? What if I just want to keep flying? What if I want to go to embassies and do this NATO stuff and use my languages? What if I want to move to Japan? Nope. They're going to want you headquarters because they need your leadership. So that's what it is. It, it becomes this moment where my commitment to the Air Force that I signed up for is done. I'm actually beyond that. I'm 18 months beyond when I needed to be here. I literally can leave at any moment. And I'm clearly stating that I would like to stay and I would like to PCS. And you're being told, nope, the plan for you when you make the next rank is like, what about retention? And then again, when you realize that your creative thinking is not driving with the organizational structure needs expectations, very logically, you have a choice to make. As my husband and I together, we chose that it was time to start the next chapter of our lives. So very logical. And we actually made a table or a spreadsheet or something of the reasons to stay, reasons to go. So yeah, but it was, it was the right choice. Definitely. I did that too when I was getting out because I got out when my first son was born. So I made a list of why I should get out why I should stay in. It was a really short list on why I should stay in because my husband was in and I was a civil engineer, so I had to deploy again. And it was... I remember the things that we had on the stay inside. They're so funny. One of them was continuing to use space day benefits because we loved going to Hawaii. And coffee is cheaper at the commissary. And we like renting boats at MWR. I mean, literally, like, that's where we were. We could think of no other reason to stay in. So what was your transition out of the military like? It, was, it was, sounds like you guys were ready to move to the next phase, but sometimes there's still some emotions that you don't expect. I think the weirdest thing was, you know, I just explained the logic behind why I decided to get out. 
not being heard that I wanted to stay. Like, so the emotion came when I think two months before getting out, we got a new wing commander. The new wing commander was given this list of all these officers that are leaving. You know, it was really bad. And so it was, it was the nineties, like late nineties. And so economy was great and, you know, it was easy to get out and find work. Well, I'm not going to say easy because there's still a process, but it was a good time for people to get out. So especially the pilots, they're all getting out. So the wing commander saw this huge list of everybody leaving. He says, what is going on here? And he literally called, set up appointments with each and every one of us that was separating to meet us and ask why we were leaving. And so I remember coming in and I brought my husband with me because I said, I don't want this guy like talking me out of leaving because we're already you know, making plans to go to California. So the emotion for me came sitting down with this wing commander and really heart to heart asking me, is there anything after he heard my story of why I was leaving? He says, so it sounds to me like you really wanted to stay. And I said, yeah, I wanted to stay, make major, move to Okinawa. My husband's Japanese. We already had this whole plan that he's going to teach English in Japan. And we're going to vacation all over Asia and he'll catch some fish and I'll go fly to Australia. It would be a great life. I would love to stay in. But they said, no, they said, you can't leave with the detention. He says, he's just shaking his head. I said, sir, I tried. I tried, I tried. And he's like, so if I could get you orders to Okinawa, would you stay? That was a hard moment because here is somebody who is a real leader who's literally trying to retain his people asking me this. And I said, sir, I'm already interviewing for professional positions that are using my master's degree in California. So is my husband. We're already halfway out the door. So I think you're about three months too late. Sorry. So that for me was hard because I felt like, oh, here we are at this, at this moment here right now. And so that made that emotional, right? But like a lot of things, like once you make your decision, make it the right decision. And so at that point, I can just tell you what was the transition like. I, I'm spending a lot of time on LinkedIn right now advising people who like you and I are, you know, are going through it. But I did not go through it alone. I actually had this amazing group of women in Spokane who were, they, they were my real transition assistance program is how I say it. They were the ones who said, okay, stop. You have talent, energy, skill, leadership. You don't have no idea what's out here in the civilian world. You don't even know where to start, right? And so you've got to stop and you have to self-assess. What are your values? What do you care about? What do you want to do? And these women literally held my hand through the transition process, taught me personal branding, taught me informational interviews, connected me with their network so I could learn what's the difference, what, what's ops as a civilian versus what I'm doing? What's logistics? What's accounting? What's finance? What's marketing? What is all that? And they let me literally kind of explore. It was like they let me shadow their friends. And so I really got to hang out and everybody came back and said, you, my dear, are a communicator. You are a marketer. You've been briefing generals at the base in Europe. You're a stand in front of executives person. And whatever the content is, that's what you do. So do you want to launch technology? Do you want to have your own business? What do you want to do? It's, and so they helped me see that of the things I could do, could the skills, skills I know, but it's what matters, what drives me, what are my interests? What's my passion? What are my values? Oh, thank God for those women. They made it so that I was able to really stay on track and be honest with myself and say no to the things that had nothing to do with me. Oh yes, we'll give you a $50,000 signing bonus because you have a top secret clearance. And I'm like, I already did that stuff. I wanna to go to telecommunications and do marketing, right? 
So to know that because you have this community, Amanda, that is why I do the work I do now to help veterans because I know that that community, that that actual education of you as you become a civilian, that needs to be at least as long as the training you've got going in, but it isn't. Five-day class, right, to get out. So for me, having had this amazing transition, I should tell you, there was two veteran women who were in that group. One of them who served in the 70s. She started this group just to network women in Spokane. And then the woman who was my babysitter when I arrived at the squadron, she was the captain in charge of the second lieutenant. She was getting out six months before me. She brought me into that group. And so my transition was a glorious six months of exploring possibilities. And I think that that's what we need to do for other veterans and tell them way before to start. Because I was doing this before I got out. And then for, I think, it was seven months between when I got out and when I accepted a job. I've been turning down six others. But that entire time I was exploring with their help. So that's a really long answer to how was my transition, but it's a really important answer because it really informs and inspires the work I do to serve our fellow veterans now with these core skills. I feel like that's what TAP is missing. I mean, A, it's too short, but B, I feel like they're just pushing you to get any job. And usually they're trying to pigeonhole you into what you're already doing instead of figuring out what your passion is. And so when I left the military, I was leaving to be a stay-at-home mom. And I was like, oh, this is going to fill me and it's going to be so amazing. And not that being a mom isn't amazing. It's still, it's really hard. And it's not the same thing as the way the military is and the way that you like, it's taken me a long time to go through the emotional process and it's why I started the podcast, but it took a while to get there. Well, I think your approach is brilliant because you are creating your own community. You are saying, I still need these people. I still need these connections. I still need to be around people who get it. And that's what I was doing. That was my whole, you know, with the women I was with because I knew that they understood me and I knew that they were driven And I knew that they wanted to help and I was so grateful for them, but we need those connections and the isolation, you felt it, the isolation of, (laughs) I tell people, congratulations, you own all your time and you're not used to owning all your time. And like, what do you do with yourself? Right. And that sudden sense of the loss of structure, it takes you a while to appreciate it, but man, that, that's hard. That is a really, really hard thing. And nobody tells you how hard it's going to be, you know? And so I think what you're doing and these stories and everything that we can do, I, I think we need to really wake up our servicemen and women who are getting out to the realities of what they need to learn and do so that they end up where they want versus where somebody else wants them. That's really true. I think that's great. We were talking about transitioning. Now let's go to joining. What would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? I would say that the decision that I made to, to become an officer and serve in the Air Force, if I could do it again right now, I would not hesitate. I would do it exactly as I did it. And to be able to say that, to be able to reflect and say, God, that was an amazing thing that happened. What a great decision that was. I would say that. So just to validate and to reaffirm that the way that I did it was so super positive for my long-term professional life and for my time to be a mom and the ability to, to manage stress and risk, I would say that the best thing you can do is to put on the uniform for a few years 
I would, of course, recommend doing it after you get your education. That would be my bias through my experience because I believe get your education first. But whatever you do, just know that the opportunities, literally the opportunities to be in front of people, to scare yourself silly, to grow, that's what the military is. I mean, it's like you can't even imagine the places that you'll get to work and the people that you'll meet and the, the cross-cultural nature of the work, assuming that you travel somewhere and do something, you know, at least leave the country in your job in some capacity, or even not, they come here too, right? But just that the people that you'll meet, the exposure that you get to people very different from yourself, all of that happening in your 20s, you are literally set up for whatever you want to do in your life. That's what I tell girls. And if you don't go to the military, if you do a more traditional role, then you're just going to get exposed to less of the people, less of the world, and, and less of the opportunities to really step into leadership at a young age. And you know what I mean? It's like, it's hard to describe it all, but I, I tell girls, like, I want you to do something where the idea of doing it, you think is quite terrifying. Because that means that you know that when you do that, that you'll change, you'll learn, you'll be different. And, and don't fear those opportunities to, to scare yourself because that's where growth happens. So that's really my message. And, and don't believe the stereotypes, don't believe the movies, you know, do believe that women literally in the military are doing every job that there is. And hallelujah, I've lived through, I've lived through the era of men telling women that they're not qualified for these jobs only to see those jobs open to women and watch women kick their ass. And so I say, you know, for a long time, men told women they couldn't fly fighters. They couldn't. And then women get in there and then they graduate the top of their class. They win in the Top Gun exercises. They end up becoming the wing commanders of the entire F-15 squadron, right? So that era of women not allowed to do things because the men said so, it's over. So young ladies, literally you can do anything in the military and you can do it to the best of your ability. I encourage them to do it. I was in from 2007 to 2013. So I was in before women were allowed to serve in combat roles, but I served in a combat role. And I feel like women have proven themselves and that's why they've been given the opportunities that girls today now can serve in the way that they're serving. Not because now they're trying this new thing, but because we've already done it. And they, like you said, they found out that, hey, we could do it and we might even do it better. Right. I think consciously or subconsciously, I, I think men for a long time actually believed that we couldn't. They all told themselves this so that it became their reality that we couldn't. And so then they kept us from doing it. But then all of a sudden, because laws change and we demanded it, we're doing it. And then they're the ones that get to be surprised. We're not surprised. It's the men that are surprised. And I love saying it that way. If I could tell you one thing, I, I have to tell you this. When I was graduating from flight training, because again, you said that you served before that, the final ground combat exclusion, okay? I finished flight training. I got my wings. Let me look at the time here. Two years before Congress lifted the combat exclusion for women to fly, which happened in June 1993, okay? So imagine, we weren't even allowed to fly in combat. Okay, by the time you got there, it was already women are flying everything, right? I was there when they still believed we should be shot at in our tankers and our airplanes, but we shouldn't be in planes with weapons. So literally, that's what they thought. So I graduated like 
second and third of my class, I walk up, because it's a meritocracy at flight training, right? You walk up to the microphone, you see the list of all the airplanes and the bases that are there. First place gets to choose from everything. Second place chooses. The last person gets whatever's left. left. It's usually some aircraft to North Dakota, okay? But I was second or third in my class. I walked up and you know, the first guy in front of me said F-15 the Luke Air Force Base. The second person says F-15E to Luke Air Force Base. I walked up, I said, Lieutenant Tiscarino, I request F-15 to Luke Air Force Base. And the room goes quiet. And I'm standing there like I'm totally serious. And the colonel then has to say, excuse me, Lieutenant Tiscarino, you do know that by law I cannot assign you to a combat aircraft. What else would you like to fly? And I said, yes, sir, I know that. I just wanted the record to show that I qualified for that aircraft. And now we're going to watch dudes graduating behind me in this class take my airplane. I mean, this is who I am. I'm just, I had to say it. And then I looked at the board and I said, KC-135 to Fairchild Air Force Base. Okay. So I tell you that story and I tell the story a lot because I'm going to say it this way. We have never had the best of the best finer military aircraft. Can we be real? That's what it is. We haven't really had the best, have we? Okay. Because before me, there was others that were denied the aircraft. But two years later, that changed. And I remember I was already at Fairchild and the media came out. They're interviewing all these women in flights. Oh, what do you think? It's so great. And they thought the news cameras thought that we're going to say, yeah, now I can go fly a bomber. Yeah. Air Force wasn't going to retrain us just because now we can. So they were, the media was disappointed that we're saying, yeah, I'm really excited for these other people. They thought we're, we're going to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go fly F-15s. I said, look, this is not about us. We are thrilled out of our minds today because right now there is a young lady walking up to a microphone to get the airplane she qualified for, and she's not going to get denied. And I, that gives me chills just to tell you that because it changed in, in that short time. And then year after year after year, we've seen women fly everything and then command the units, and then go fly the Thunderbirds. So what an amazing time to be alive, right? So that's, that's the arc. And I feel like I'm 100 years old when I tell you this, but that all happened very, very fast. From lift the exclusion, to all these women go fly, to bam, you're, you're now colonels and generals. And I don't know if you know this, but you know Captain Marvel that just came out? There's a clip, you should find it or I'll send it to you, of Brie Larson at Nellis Air Force Base, where they filmed the Air Force parts of the movie. And in the, in the clip, she's meeting Lieutenant General Jeannie, and I can't remember her married name, but when I saw that clip, I said, oh my God, that's Jeannie Flynn. Because she was the first woman to go fly F-15s when the combat conclusion was lifted. And she's the general now commanding the entire wing at Nellis, right? And so she got to meet Brie Larson and it was Brie Larson who was like, oh my God, you are so cool because she's the movie star, but she's like the legit woman fighter pilot general. So you should see that clip. So that makes me so happy because literally that's been 25 years. Yeah, I saw Captain Marvel and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It was so good. Four times to see it now, my family and I were like, let's go again. <laughs> let's go 3D. Let's go again. I went with my husband, and I was like, I really wish I would have went with my girlfriends. And if I had a daughter, I would have already gone back, but I have two boys, so. Yeah, we'll go with some girlfriends. Just mix it up. I went with my husband on a date, I went with my daughters, and I went with some of my friends. I'm, I'm sure we're going to go again. Such a good movie. And it talks, I felt like it did a really good job of talking about the challenges that women faced in the military and the things that she had to overcome. 
and it wasn't that long ago. Solid. The characters were real. The characters had all the ambition and all the ability, but then they still talked about, you know, remember that was before the Air Force let women fly fighters. So that's why we were doing this experimental stuff. So that that's what gets me in the heart because that's exactly the time that I lived through it is we can do all that stuff. We're just not allowed to. And then hallelujah, all of a sudden, yeah, we're allowed to. And uh, it's just been amazing to watch. I wanted you to talk a little bit about what you do and what your organization is. Wow. Okay. So I want to share a statistic. The Census Bureau measures the number of businesses that are created in the United States every five years they measure. And I want to share with women that in the last five-year period that the census released their numbers, which are businesses created between 2007 and 2012, that five-year period, they just released that data. There is a 297% increase in the number of businesses started by women veterans, like almost 300% increase. So I start with that because my business was born in that time period. What I do is I create the short sentences, I'm in the business of inspiration. And how can I inspire veterans? How can I inspire women? How can I inspire children? How can I inspire my Latino community? So the communities that I come from, and oh, by the way, I have a disabled daughter. She's blind, hearing impaired, and epileptic. So I'm asked to do work with special education and parents raising kids with special needs because of the way that we have raised our daughter as if she didn't have anything wrong with her. We just let her live an amazing full life and she's literate and she's a musician. And so I created a company, Amanda, that allows me to create book, award-winning literature, books, eBooks, digital classes for schools, keynote presentations, webinars. I create to uplift these communities. My company is called Gracefully Global Group. So we have global distribution of our books and content. And I'll just highlight two things that are related to my military service, directly inspired. I run around the country to universities where student veterans are enrolled and community organizations that serve veterans. But mostly I'm focused on the universities and colleges right now. And I stand before them as somebody who, like you and I, has transitioned from the military to the civilian world, has gone through that identity crisis, has gone through that who am I? How do I talk about myself? Oh, wait, I don't even want to talk about myself. And I teach authentic personal branding for military veterans because you probably know this already. And if not, you're going to find it out really soon is the only way that as a civilian, you'll be successful is when other people know you exist. And that's a statement to get yourself an interview. That's a statement to get someone to ask for your resume. And that's certainly a statement to attract prospects and business to your company. So I teach our fellow brothers and sisters in uniform, how to tell their authentic, compelling, just amazing stories of what they've lived through different parts of their lives. I take them through a branding exercise because I'm a marketer. I have a master's degree in business and marketing. So I teach them how to create a brand that is uniquely theirs, that when they speak it, when they write it, when you read it, you cannot forget them. And it's so powerful. I just came back from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I did two workshops last week. Next week to serve Student Veterans of America Pacific Regional Conference. 20 schools are gathering vets there. And I'm going to Portland State. So I, I just come in and I teach this really important professional development. So that's my direct service to our veterans in transition who are students. And the second thing I did as a publisher is my little boy saw me in uniform and he was in preschool. And he asked me about my patches and everything. And as he walked out the door, he said, I love you, Captain Mama. So he created Captain Mama as a character which for a creative person felt like I got hit in the face with a rock. Like I woke up and I suddenly had to know, do women veterans write books for kids to talk about what we do? So two women who had ever done it. We usually write memoirs. So we've created the first ever 
bilingual Spanish-English children's book series about women serving in the military. CaptainMama.com is where you can see that little video clip of my son that first night when he saw me. And he literally inspired this entire book series. We're doing the third book now. Thank you for asking what I do because I really, after working in corporate and marketing and all this technology, I've created my company that is creating a legacy of literature and digital courses. And I'm reaching hundreds of thousands of kids and I think we've shipped our books now to 38 of the 50 states. And we have a downloadable class for teachers to download Captain Mama into the classroom, like a 16-minute classroom presentation, as if I'm there. So you see pictures, video, I'm in my uniform talking to the kids. The whole class in Spanish, and it ends with vamos a leer. And then the teacher reads in Spanish or the English version, which ends, and let's read. So I am getting to do work to tell my story as an Air Force aviator and a veteran. That's what I do. I am a storyteller and I teach veterans how to become epic storytellers for whatever they need to do next. I think that's the best summary. I'm so glad that I got to have you as a guest on the podcast and I learned so much from you, which I always do when I do these interviews. So thank you so much for your time and for being willing to share your story and for all the work you're doing for veterans and for women who've served and the books sound amazing. Well, you know what? I am really proud of you because I can't tell you how many times people have suggested that I create a podcast. They say, do a podcast and interview all the veterans whose brands you're helping create. Have them come on there and tell their stories about their transition and, and how hard it's been and how now that they've done that, how important. I'm like, dude, I just cannot add a podcast to my life, you know? So I am so happy that you are doing a podcast to tell our stories. So thank you for what you're doing and for building the community and amplifying our stories. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.